Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Deeply Technical series. Hello, and welcome to the Codish podcast. My name is Mike Mondragon, and I'll be your host for this episode of Codish. Today, we are speaking with Brett Fisher, who is a Docker captain about Docker containers. I know Brett from his DevOps and Docker Talk podcast. Brett, can you introduce yourself? Hi there, Mike. My name is Brett. I am a Docker captain, a DevOps-ish sysadmin. I basically do ops for a living as a freelance consultant, and then I talk on the internet about Docker and Kubernetes constantly. I would like, I'd love to hear about uh, what it's like to be a Docker captain and, and what those responsibilities are. Yeah, that's a great question because you know, Docker captains have been around for uh, three, four years maybe. I think it was 2016 when they first announced it. Um, essentially, it's, it's, there's other similar programs in the industry, uh, but there are three rules, I guess, to being a Docker captain. Um, you can't work for Docker. You need to be an expert in some sort of Docker tooling or container tooling, or, or you know, necessarily an expert, but someone who who knows it well. Uh, and there's so many tools now, like you can't possibly keep track of them all. So I, it used to be just Docker, but now there's so much. Um, and then the third rule is you talk about it nonstop. And so you don't really apply to be a Docker captain. It's more of you, you sort of you know, cream rising to the top sort of thing of the community. You might be running a, a meetup about Docker. You might be uh, talking about it on your blog or you're doing a, your own podcast or something, or you're just constantly in Stack Overflow answering questions for for months and months. And then you'll probably get noticed by maybe some of the engineers at Docker or maybe some of the marketing team, and they will ask you to be in the program. And that's kind of how I started. I was a meetup organizer I was speaking at conferences and I kept bugging Docker for swag that I wanted to get. I wanted to give out their swag at conferences because I kept talking about their tools and I was starting to blog a little bit about it. And they said, Hey, you're doing all these things. And we're, uh, originally they had a blogging and speaking program, but then eventually they created a larger one, uh, known as Docker captains. And there's about, uh, 60 or 70 of us around the world. One thing, even now for me, it's, Sometimes I still conceptualize Docker as like the monolith, but actually it it has been um, broken up into components. And it might be useful to get you to kind of talk about what Docker is today uh, for new developers or even old developers that you know haven't really been paying attention to that stuff. Yeah, and we've certainly seen lots of movement in the industry. So even if you were keeping up to date two years ago, you know, it, it is, it can be kind of tough to figure out what, where are we now and how do we get here? The shorter story on this scenario was that essentially six to seven years ago, a, a company much like yourselves um, was creating an online platform called dot cloud. And they, at some point decided that they were going to open source the way they built their cloud. And they, a lot of that was automation around some fundamental Linux capabilities, namely C groups and namespaces, two parts of the kernel that allowed you to isolate programs and run multiple copies of those programs all on the same host without them uh, really interfering or being able to see each other. So it, it created that great security isolation. 
And then they invented some other idea where they were saying, let's take all, an app and all of its dependencies, let's shove them all into a, a location on the hard drive, and then allow us to tarball that up and ship it around the internet using HTTPS file storage. And we'll call that an image of your application. And you can move that around everywhere you want. And we'll, cre we'll create that common package format for any application on relatively any platform. And of course, at the time, it was just Linux. Now it's Windows and mainframe and IoT and everywhere. And so they created these two parts of it, right? The idea of what a modern container is, and then the packaging format that we now call a container image for moving apps around, versioning those apps, having different iterations of those apps. And so they, they brought that all together into a project they called Docker. And so for years, they just iterated on that. They just made that better so that more people could use it. More, it was user-friendly. They did focus very much on the developer workflow. So their, their sort of namesake, besides those in, inventions of the ideas of what a modern container looks like and the packaging format, was keeping it simple enough that a developer could use it. Because traditionally, you know, me being a sysadmin, we, we love infrastructure. So we would naturally create a bunch of infrastructure to run your apps. <laughs> and mm -hmm. that would unnecessarily complicate things. And so Docker's motivation was, hey, let's, let's reduce the complexity. Let's make this easier to update applications, to deploy applications, keep them isolated, run 10 versions of the same app on a single server or 100 versions of that app across 10 servers, right? So they, they did really well of that. And then somewhere around 2015, 2016, Everybody real everybody started running Docker everywhere. Like, and when I say everyone, I mean everyone that's on the bleeding edge of tech. Like the rest of the right. world was ignoring it, right? And the bleeding edge of tech, the cloud companies, Netflix's, the Googles, um, I'm sure that Heroku was getting into it too. They had so many servers running Docker, they they felt like, okay, well, we have this really easy way to to package up and move these apps around, but we want to manage a hundred servers as easy as we manage one. So let's figure out a way to orchestrate these servers into a cluster so that we can use this similar command lines that we use for Docker to deploy 100 copies of that app on 100 servers, that kind of stuff. Okay. And so that was the where the orchestrator was born. Now, this nowadays- is a, This is Swarm. Yeah, this is Swarm yeah. and Kubernetes. And they both came out. Um, Kubernetes was a little bit early. They, they actually were announced at DockerCon. But we had all these other ones too. We had uh, Mesosphere at the time. Um, it was Marathon was the- the part of it and there was three or four other ones if you, uh, AWS came out with ECS which they still run uh, elastic container service and all, and the whole goal of all of these things was simply to run docker on many different servers but have a single command line interface to deploy and manage apps across all those servers that's right around the time where Kelsey Hightower will call it the container wars <laughs> mm. where we had all these different ideas of of what it meant to run containers across a bunch of servers. And ironically, at the time, Docker was, they kind of nailed it with the runtime. And the runtime is what we call that Docker engine that sits on a server and just launches your containers and then manages the container, stops the container, you know, downloads the image, uploads the image. That's the engine or what, what we now call the runtime. Okay. And that hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot in the last seven years. Like that's, we've had some other ideas about it. Um, Container D, Cryo, Rocket, some other projects that, but, but they're all essentially at this point, they all do fundamentally the same thing. So that is, the good news is, if, in case you 
haven't uh, checked this stuff out for a couple of years is that runtime hasn't changed much. The Docker command line is still very much what it used to be. It just has more bells and whistles. And that containers fundamentally are still the same idea that we had from Docker 1.0 back in 2014. Yeah, my background's as a full stack developer. And so, you know, over the course of my career, Linux has always been there. So back in the day, you'd have to kind of know how to, you know, uh, admin a Linux machine or as as your work environment. And then when uh, VirtualBox and, and Vagrant came around, that was that was great for me because then I could, you know, have components of, of my full stack there without having to manage it from the command line. Or I could manage those components from one source instead of invoking like a database or search engine, whatnot from different, different shells on, on my, on my desktop. And, uh, the, the part of Docker that I use right now and, uh, for the, are used quite a bit for local development is Docker compose. It's the same thing where I'm working with different components and usually they are orchestrated together in terms of making the full app. And so that's how I ha- have been using been using Docker. It's been real convenient for me in that in as far as uh, as a, as a developer. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Docker Compose, and I still use it daily. So um, it there's not it hasn't gone away. It's uh, if anything, what has started to happen. And so for those that haven't looked at Docker Compose, it's a it's a, a tool that comes with Docker. It's a separate binary and it's there to help you forget all of the stuff in the Docker run command. <laughs> you know, it's there to so that you don't have to be this expert on all the different command lines you have to run just to start your apps. And so Compose created a YAML file format known as the Compose file. And it you run this command line, Docker, docker-compose, and it can spin up one or more containers. It might spin up a database, a web front end, the API backend, whatever. If you have a microservice, it's almost necessary because you, you'll have maybe 20 containers and each one of them can be all in the same YAML file. And you can do a simple Docker compose up command regardless of your app. And that's the one thing that um, I love talking about is, you know, Docker run definitely feels like you need to be a little bit of a container expert because there's you have to set all these options. And if you're doing local development, you have to set up volumes and networks and all that stuff. but once you get your compose file format down and you probably would Google, you know, my Java app or my Ruby app, and then you'd find some compose file examples and Docker file examples. But once right. you get that compose and Docker file down, you're running the same command every day. Docker compose up, Docker compose down, Docker compose up. Like that's kind of the workflow of anyone, regardless of their application developing environment. And I feel like that is also, it's one of those huge things that we just, when you look back 10 years ago, you're like, how did we ever get along without this tool? <laughs> right. One other thing that reminds me of like my own ins and outs of development with do- using Docker Compose is the other thing that I like is you can, let's say I have a, a DB and Redis, but I have changed code on, on my app and somehow it's not working right. And I just want to restart the the container that uh, my app is composed of. And so I can just stop it and start it without actually bringing all the other components in, in Docker compose up and down. 
um, which I found pretty useful because if, if I have like a, a bunch of components that are in Docker Compose, then I don't want to like bring them all up and down if I'm just like restarting like the, the basic component that's my app. Yeah, that's a good tip too. I think um, with Docker Compose, I, I've had, I've worked with several teams that they felt like Docker Compose command line, even though it's way simpler than the Docker command line, they wanted to present their large development teams. And when I say large, I mean like 30 to 40 developers. They wanted to present to them a, a higher level of abstraction in their tooling. So they would create maybe shell scripts around Docker Compose. And I'm, I'm very much against that. I actually think that most developers today, especially if you're looking to do microservice work, uh, should learn the do- basics of Docker, but then very quickly shift to focusing on the Docker Compose command line and really learn that tool. Because if you do, it becomes, in my mind, it becomes the way you manage your apps for development. It becomes, it replaces the, you know, like you said, the, the virtualization of years past where we had all these VM tools running locally that would help automate starting servers and stopping them. And it becomes that one thing. And, and what you're seeing now, and this is, I think, part of the, what's showing the success in, of Docker Compose itself is when you use tools like VS Code, Visual Studio Code, or other IDEs, they're all starting to integrate Docker and even Docker Compose into their tooling so that you can just do a, you essentially, instead of having to type Docker Compose up, <laughs> you just click a button or you you select something in a menu and it will automatically run that Docker Compose file for you because it once it sees that file, it knows, okay, this is how you would prefer to start all your apps and manage them. Um, and I, I honestly, I have a couple of courses, between the couple of courses that I have on Docker and Docker Compose, I could easily put together five hours of training on just Compose because, like you said, you can do a Docker Compose up, dub, 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 and that will that will only start the service in your Compose file called dub, dub, dub. That might be your, or www for not short speak, but, um, and if you have a database in the back end and you just call that service DB in the YAML file, you could do Docker Compose up DB. And that will only start that part of your your compose file and then any of its dependencies, which is where we get into the depends on feature in the YAML, which allows you to connect the different parts of your app. But the most important part of that feature is when if you have a microservice, you typically don't want to start all 20 of those um, at the same time. When you're, when you're working on one of them, you just really want its required dependencies for it to function. And that's what the Docker Compose up and then whatever the name is of your service. And it relies on that depends on feature in the YAML to ensure that everything else is started before you start the the one you're working on. When I search around, there's always like different versions. And I'm not sure if I'm doing the right syntax for my Docker Compose. Is there like an easy way to make sure I'm doing it right? Or if I'm choosing the right syntax, can you do anything off the top of your mind that... Any pro tip yeah. you can give me around that? Well, when it comes to the syntax and the the versions themselves, the the cheat sheet here is there are two current versions of Docker Compose YAML. And for a, for a minute, let's separate the YAML file uh, language and that definition from the Docker Compose CLI tool, which executes commands based on that YAML, right? Those are technically two separate things. So when we talk about the Docker Compose file, um, it has a version. And today there are two version branches, and that's the the two branch and the three branch. And a lot of the confusion in the, in the community has been thinking that everyone should be running the three branch. And you know, 
what's really ended up, ended up happening, whether that was intentional or not, is that the two branch is ideal for local development and the three branch is designed for multi-server production clusters mm. running Swarm or Kubernetes. So what's ended up happening is that one of my most common tips for people when I, when I start working on their projects and they've been using Compose a while is that they've upped the version to the latest three version, which I think is like 3.7. So you'll see this first line in the YAML file that says version 3.7. And then I know for a fact that they're not using that file in production because their production is different or they, they don't use Compose YAML in production and they're just using it for local development. So then I will always back them up to version 2.4, which is the latest version on the two branch, mm. because that actually has more features for local development than the three, um, mostly just because they, they didn't want to create one superset of all the functionality for local development, because some things for local development don't make sense in production. For local development, you you uh, want something called the wait on or it depends on we talked about you want that to be able to wait for your database to start up before it tries to start the node.js app or whatever and in production when you're talking about multiple clusters and multiple servers you know those what you really need in production is retries right you need on any distributed system you need retry but on local development you really don't want your app to sit there and spin over and over retrying 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 so we have this concept in the Docker Compose 2 version that is probably the most misunderstood feature of Compose. So I'm always trying to get the word out that if you use the depends on feature in a two point something version file, you can add a health check to it. So just go look up the Docker documentation and I think it's docs.docker.com. And in that single page of Compose documentation, there'll it's inferred in there, it's not super obvious, but that if you add a health check, and you update that little depends on feature, it will wait for the health check to finish on any of your apps before it will start their other parts of the app that depend on it. And that is, um, once I show a developer that when they're running a bunch of different containers, <laughs> they get super excited, right? I'm excited, <laughs> you, like, just taught me, you just taught me something on the versions <laughs> and, and that, and the health check. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, and, it's, and it exists in the version two format, but they took it out of the version three uh, and I largely believe that that was because in in clusters, we don't have that ability to really even do that. Most servers can't intelligently check other things that other servers are running to see if those things are properly started. So we have things like re uh, retries and clusters and um, and health checks and other things in clusters that are different than what you would do locally with wait for. So um, and over the years, people have created all sorts of scripts and things called wait, wait for scripts and whatnot to solve this problem locally, but it turns out Compose actually already does it. You were just not aware of it. <laughs> so. I see. In this theme of like clearing up uh, like things that I've been seeing or may not quite understand, is it Rocket, RKT, and, and yeah. Kata containers? How do they play in this compared to Docker? Well, the spoiler here is that almost everyone still uses Docker on their local machine. And so I think... Um, you know, a lot of us that are super excited about anything new, right? Anything new that shows up on the scene and people start talking about it, we're thinking, okay, do I need to redesign or, re or change my tooling to optimize for this new stuff? Um, and so the boring part of that is actually everyone still really uses Docker because it's still the most feature-rich, tried-and-true, um, command-line-friendly-for-developer tooling out there. 
But there are now, what happens is a lot of other tools showing up that fill in um, edge cases, I would call them. So Rocket was a project started uh, three or four years ago. And the idea was it of it was, let's, let's try an alternative form of the container runtime. And that's technically inside of Docker and the Docker engine, there's a little part of it that we now call container D that is the one thing that runs your app in a container. It basically talks directly to the kernel and does a lot of low level stuff. But with Docker, we add these layers of abstraction on top so that when you say Docker, what you're really saying is, I'm talking about the command line tool that talks to the Docker engine. And it has all these concepts around things like networks and images and containers and volumes and configs and secrets. And like, there's all sorts of other things it can do. It does snapshotting, but that's not the low level tooling's concern necessarily. That's all of the convenience features that Docker puts on top of it. So over the years, we have had other container runtimes as different ways to try this out. Uh, Rocket was the first on the scene that got a lot of attention, but unfortunately it's now a deprecated project and is no longer being maintained. (laughs) Okay. So I I wish they would make that a little more obvious in their, uh, in their GitHub because it's not obvious, but I I think, uh, the other container runtimes that we have now uh, include Container D and Cryo. Those are the two other popular ones. Now, Container D was what we now know as Docker breaking up the monolith. And Docker even joked in, I think, uh, 2016 or 2017, they joked that we, we created a tool for helping you deploy microservices, but then we created a monolith tool to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, if... If anyone remembers back to the news in uh, 2016, maybe it's 2017. I keep mix, mixing those two years up. It was a it was a blur of a time. But Docker announced that they were moving Docker to Moby Moby, and so what this was was a rebranding of the low level components that Docker was using to create Docker. And essentially, what it was was them attempting to split out some of the raw low level open source that was relatively unopinionated and give that to the community, even though it was already open source, uh, it it wasn't separated from Docker, the company. So a lot of people were concerned that one company was controlling the container ecosystem too much. And it was a valid concern. Um, A lot of the maintainers were Docker employees, so it felt like not everyone else got an opinion on this tool that now everyone was using. Mm -hmm. So Docker said, we're going to take the the, the low-level tooling that's largely unopinionated uh, and when I say a largely unopinionated, I mean that we all generally agree that these, this is the way you do these low-level things. And they they took that chunk out. They moved it to a new repo called Moby slash Moby in GitHub, and they called it the Moby Project. And it largely confused everyone. <laughs> so uh, today, what we look at is we see that in Docker's GitHub, they have the Docker CLI, they have Docker engine releases, and that's what we all use day to day. But Underneath that, there's now a bunch of other libraries and tools. One's called Run C, one's called Container D. There's a bunch of different kits, like we have Swarm Kit and VPN Kit and Build Kit, and a lot. And this is all stuff that you would never care about unless you were working on developing the container tools themselves, right? Okay. Like if you were building clouds yourself and you wanted this low-level tooling you would care about all that infrastructure. But for the rest of us who just want a tool to run containers, we're all just still running 
Docker CLI and the Docker engine. So we installed Docker and it technically puts a, something called Docker D, the Docker daemon on a Linux server or a Windows server. And then we use this, the command line Docker to connect to that API and run it. The other thing that can be kind of confusing right now also is like some messaging that you kind of alluded to around um, like the state of Docker, the organization itself. Is that right? Yeah. So um, even though Docker, the company has been around six years, they're they're, they're kind of still like a startup. They're not yet profitable. They've been announcing for years that they're very close to profit. Um, and they're not a public company, so none of us really get to see any of that. Um, so they have had multiple rounds of funding over the years, trying to figure out their market space and where they basically where they're going to make their money. Because all you know, right now, when we all the things we talked about, those are all free. So around 2016, everybody was talking about the orchestrators, which is an, that higher level tool that manages a bunch of servers, and we all now know those as Kubernetes and Swarm and ECS, that looked like it was going to be the place where everyone was going to truly compete and that where the money was to be made, right? The billions were in the orchestrator, not in the runtime, because everyone had, you know, Docker basically had won, where everyone was running Docker. And now the, the competition, the war was really about this multi-server container orchestrator. And that's when they, they had actually had a tool called Swarm. That was now we now know as Swarm Classic, and then they cr recreated it, and we call it Swarm Mode, which is a built-in feature of Docker that's still a great way to run a bunch of servers and run containers on top of them. And then Kubernetes uh, was very, very quickly sort of taking over the scene, and everyone was starting to try to figure out how to run it. And it is now by far the the most used container orchestrator for multi-server management. So what Docker decided was around that time, they decided they were going to create products around the orchestration, and that was going to be their, their big money you know, breadwinner. And over the years, they have been building out that practice. And most people, if you watch the company itself, it, it was like, you know, it's to start, it was 75, 50 engineers and you know, a couple of marketing people and product design people, and, but mostly engineering. As they started to sell these products, they realized they need, the, they need to basically become a Red Hat. They need to become a company that is creating a consulting arm, a support arm, a, uh, you know, a sales arm. And they were going after government business. We actually had a, something called Fed Summit every year here in, in the Washington, D.C. area uh, that would cater to the government offices about uh, all the security stuff that Docker had built in because they really focused a lot on security and code pipelines for secure uh, development and deployments. And they were, they were competing with Red Hat and with Rancher and with... Heptio, who's now VMware, and a lot of these huge multi-billion dollar companies. It was a tough time. So I guess, and then this is all me speculating, but at some point this year, they figured out that they really have two businesses. They have developer tooling that is what we think of as Docker and Docker Compose and Docker Engine. And now they have things like the new build kit, which is a, a, a more efficient way to build Docker images and get you lots of new features for building container images. And they're experimenting with a lot of that stuff and making it even easier to deploy apps. And then they have this enterprise business that's about managing multi-server clusters. And that was known as Docker Enterprise. And they obviously that tool ran Docker, but it was largely a separate business. And a lot of us, even in the captain's world, we kind of were on one fence or the other. Like we either used one part of the tooling or the other part. And it was a little tough to figure out, okay, 
how are we how are we supposed to dance this line of being open source fanatics but also you know docker obviously wanted us to be fans of their enterprise tooling and a lot of us were yeah but uh, a lot of us in the community were also trying to just we wanted them to win we wanted them to be a company and and, and make money and they basically made a decision and this is where we get to an announcement from two, two months ago so that's the background background okay and so they, they made this announcement that they were splitting the company and that they were selling off all of the closed source assets and all of the people to support that. So that meant out of the 400 plus employees, that was 350 to 325 employees. So they sold off that entire side of the business. And that includes everything from Docker Enterprise to the Docker certification, the DCA uh, Docker Certified Administrator or Associate, actually Docker Certified Associate. They sold that off and they sold it to a company, Barantis, who is known for being a cluster sales and consulting company for Kubernetes and multi-server container clusters, right? So they're, they're, they were the perfect, you know, you, they could have sold to VMware or Red Hat or someone else, but it was a perfect example of like taking a company that's already an expert in this and then giving them fuel for the fire because Docker had like some 700 enterprise customers, including really big inter, you know, multinational conglomerates. So that business is now gone. What's left is Docker is now 75 engineers, most, almost exclusively engineers, 75 people that maintain all of the open source. Okay. And their focus is now on Docker Hub and making, basically making Docker Hub as awesome as it can be and adding a, what we assume a whole bunch of features and uh, basically building it up into what we all really wanted it to be in the first place, which was this place to find applications and deploy them as easy as possible. And then Docker Desktop, which a lot of us probably use today on our Windows and Mac machines to make it easier for running Docker and Docker Compose. And they're, they've already started to do some of that. They're adding GUIs to Docker Desktop so that you can manage your containers in Docker Compose with a GUI. Um, who knows what else they're going to do. So that's now their new focus is they're back to the original goal before we got distracted in orchestration, what, which was developer tooling to make it easier for devs on their machine to get apps into production without necessarily worrying about the multi-server container orchestration clustering thing that we now basically most of us run Kubernetes and a few of us still run Swarm. So for me recently, a lot of people on my team have, so we do have Kubernetes in a part of my team and a lot of the developers have, are, have gotten um, the CCAD, what is it? Um, certified Kubernetes application mm -hmm. developer. Is that right? Yeah. Certification. Yep. And so exactly. I have yet, yet to do that and to help myself learn that I built uh, a Raspberry Pi based cluster for Raspberry Pi 4s, I think, like the latest Raspberry Pi. And yeah. I, it turns out, I think I did the Kubernetes the hard way where I was like, I want to learn each bit of this on my own and not use like a distribution. And then ha having listened to the Kubernetes podcast, I heard them talk about uh, Rancher Keys. And it's like, oh, I could have just done this all a much quicker and easier with rancher keys and so that's what i have um uh, in my little play cluster were you talking about kelsey hightower's uh repo when you said you were doing it the hard way well i i knew no i wasn't using his repo at the time but i had heard of that before and i realized that oh when you roll it by hand like this you're doing it the hard way 
<laughs> yeah. So what we're talking about is Kelsey Hightower's uh, Kubernetes the hard way repo, which is very popular. And I, I used it very early on as a way, and I, I didn't actually run every command, but I, I mentally processed the documentation, right? I went through, and I was like, okay, now I'm creating a certificate. Oh, now I'm creating another certificate. Oh, and now I have to install this tool. Okay, and now I need to move this certificate over here. Okay, now I need a copy of that one. You know, like you're st- you're going step by step uh, to learn what the installers and the distributions are providing for you because that's a lot of their value. A lot of these distributions, their value is in managing the installation and setup, and then the upgrading of Kubernetes itself. Now, if you're someone who deploys to one of the cloud-provided Kubernetes. Uh, um, you know, Fargate, uh, even DigitalOcean now has one. All of those, that's one of the things they do for you is they manage what we call the control plane. The control plane is the API and all of its dependencies, including a database and other things. That is the control plane that manages your apps on Kubernetes. And for a lot of us, we don't, we don't ever have to care about that. Mm-hmm. We, we should probably know a little bit about it, like what you did. That was a, a great learning lesson. But we. If we're just app deployers and app managers, we don't necessarily care about the infrastructure components. And that's what a lot of these are doing. They're, you know, EKS at AWS, their Elastic Kubernetes is managing the API and all of its dependencies so that basically they just, you, you tell them to set it up and then they give you an endpoint. And that as an API endpoint that you tell your command line, your Kubernetes command line to talk to. and that that's what is one of the pieces that I think, you know, years from now, a lot of us won't ever need to know how Kubernetes is made. <laughs> okay. The picture that comes to mind for me then was I, like I said, I had heard about keys on the Kubernetes podcast from Google. And I, I knew that I didn't want to just like go with the distribution and, and take everything that, all of the all of the assumptions that it made and so i resisted it in installing keys like the thing that stuck out to me was the creator was talking about how he had replaced um etcd with what at a, essentially the etcd function of kubernetes in keys is is like their own own uh, implementation that runs on sqlite if if i remember correctly yeah yep And so hearing you talk about this, it's like, okay, if I'm messing around with different Kubernetes distributions, that's fine because they are all conforming to the Kubernetes API. And so all of my Kubernetes, all of my um, kubectl or kubectl commands are going to be the same regardless of uh, EKS or whatever other distribution I'm using. Is that right? Right. Like whether or not you're running on Google's uh, Kubernetes engine or... Um, whatever, like the, the, the reason to know your, to learn a distribution is usually going to be only because you need it in your own data center. If you're running in the cloud, like pick whatever cloud vendor you're using, use the one they provide you, right? So that way you don't have to learn a different distribution, which is really just a way to install and manage it. And, and all of these are using the, the cube control command line or some call it cube cuddle or Cube cuddle or however you want to call it, but yeah. cube control. And that's the thing is that you should be able to operate the your you deploy your applications 
on any of these APIs with the same command line and the same YAML file. Uh, the, the, the nuances get into where it's like persistent storage and maybe load balancer configurations, things that are possibly external to just the servers themselves. Obviously, that gets a little different depending on who you're using and which driver, essentially which plugin you're using for them. Um, so that's that's not quite there where it's literally drag and drop. But hey, this is as close as we've all ever, all have ever been. So this is kind of it's still complicated, but it's still the best we've seen. So. I see. Okay, I'm a full stack developer. Do I actually really need to do my development environment in Kubernetes, or can I get by with doing like the Docker Compose thing that we talked about earlier? This is the consulting answer, right? Yeah. It depends. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> I'd say that, like a lot of these tools, it requires understanding your team, right? Like, how, how big is your team? What's the expertise of your team? How complicated is your app? Um, I recently had a discussion with a team that was. You know, they were developing two apps. I mean, it was literally two different containers. You don't need Kubernetes for that, right? Like just deploy it on Heroku or deploy it on Cloud Run on Google or, you know, on, on something else. That doesn't require the abstraction of understanding all this infrastructure because Kubernetes is a lot. Like one of the challenges of Kubernetes is that it's a lot of infrastructure. It's a lot of complexity. And it's necessary if you're an infrastructure manager. But... Kubernetes was written by operators for operators. And that's a, re that's a really interesting distinction is that Docker was written you know, by developers that were focused on app development to make app development easier for developers. Okay. And Kubernetes was written by operator developers that were focused on making operations for people that were building private clouds easier. That kind of gets lost in the messaging of like everything should be Kubernetes, everything should be this and that. But really, all Kubernetes is is a bunch of APIs that are running Docker. Right. So uh, a lot of people forget that this is all still Docker containers running in Docker from Docker images, and you maybe aren't technically using the Docker engine underneath Kubernetes. You might be using a, an alternate runtime known as Container D or Cryo, C R I dash O. Mm -hmm. In order of popularity from some reports, I think a week ago, Docker is still when it comes to who's running the container. Docker is still like 70%. Uh, Container D, which is technically partially built by the Docker team and is what Docker runs. When you run Docker, you're actually running Container D underneath it. Can, so, But Container D is just a leaner version without all the fancy features. It, it has very basic features for running your containers. And that is now at like, I don't know, 20%. 20, 20 I'm going to get my math wrong in the percentages. And then Cryo, which is built by Red Hat and used on OpenShift, uh, is run, you know, by OpenShift people, so maybe like five percent. And what we've learned now is that all of the Kubernetes management engines for the cloud. So we're talking, we're talking uh, DigitalOcean, uh, Google, Amazon, Azure. They have all standardized on Container D as as their runtime. But for you and I as a developer, we shouldn't ever have to care about that, right? And, unless we're managing the infrastructure, that's something we just never have to worry about. What our our goal should be is. Keep things as simple as possible locally. Now, most of us aren't in that boat. Most of us have more complicated apps and we need to have a bunch of different things running locally. Um, so I still prefer Docker Compose. I, I think the jury is out on whether you should move to Kubernetes locally. I can say for a fact that it will drain your battery faster than anything else <laughs> on your machine. And uh, even the best, smallest version of Kubernetes still eats 10% of my eight core MacBook. 
But yeah, so I think honestly, it depends, but mostly no. Like the people that I see running Kubernetes locally for development are either developing on, on the Kubernetes project themselves or, the, or they are so bleeding edge that this podcast would be boring to them. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, you know, they, they're using something called service mesh and they're injecting bunch, basically a bunch of proxies into every single container they run. And they're doing a whole lot of automation around their app inside of Kubernetes so that it is, it's actually quite hard for them to f- fully test their app locally without having the Kubernetes system. Yeah, that was um, the original thinking of Heroku is, is that we wanted to save the developer from knowing having to know all about DevOps. And so the original interface to Heroku was the Git interface, you know, Git push Heroku master. And so I, I'll, as a developer locally, I can just, I can work on my app, you know, try it out locally or just push it up to Heroku and then, and then, and then see it running there. And then Heroku handles all of the, uh, all of the security and all of the infrastructure that's needed to run the app, whether it be a database or a memory cache, that kind of those kinds of things. Yeah, and it's still. I mean, I have friends that I have never been able to win over on the container bandwagon because they love Heroku, and their answer to you know, I need to develop another app and deploy it. I'm just going to you know, I'm just going to use Heroku, and we will have we will have conversations around the fact that you know largely containers was the idea of trying to help us reduce the complexity like Heroku does but for everywhere else <laughs> you know and so for a lot of my friends they they didn't they never needed to go containers because they already had not not to sound like a freaking advertisement for <laughs> Heroku but uh you know I still use it today uh ironically parts of my own uh, infrastructure that I set up for my container courses technically runs in containers on Heroku because it's just so much easier to run it there. Cool. Was there any other thoughts that you, that you have for us? I think to really to wrap all this up, I think that when I talk to people about, you know, when I when consulting clients, uh, when I talk at conferences now, I do always kind of tend to mention that we all, we all live in bubbles and we all love the tools we know and um, prefer the tools that we know. And obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you're always cu- you're curious and you're listening to the you're you're wanting to learn about new things, which is like step one of all this. But uh, I think that with the way that we have gotten online with our news and our media and the hype cycles of all this new tech, it can be a little uh, daunting and. Uh, you know, everyone feels like they're not on the coolest thing if they're not on Kubernetes right now. At least when I talk to people, they all think they should be doing Kubernetes and they all should be doing containers. And I want to give everyone permission to not do that. <laughs> so while we're on the podcast, like, you know, talking about that, these are all excellent tools that solve problems. Uh, but if you don't really have those problems, you maybe don't need that tool. And there are, you know, we've had a couple of companies that do cloud deployments of things and they've talked about why they're not doing kubernetes and it's not because they necessarily have a different idea of how to do containers or whatever they just feel like for their unique environment their unique uh scenario for whatever their cloud is um the idea there is it's like 
this is definitely a cool tool that is going to change a lot of the industry in the future, but it, is, it doesn't mean that it's a panacea for every different po possible problem that we all have. And you should always try to strive for the simplest way to solve your problem rather than the coolest way to solve your problem. I am also very guilty of this because I love new tech. And so I always talk to, with the, whenever I'm talking with a consulting team that wants to do containers, one of our very first conversations is around, okay, let's look at your team. Let's look at the expertise. Let's look at your, tool, your tooling that you have today. And let's look for basically how do we get your code from your developer machine into production more reliably and faster. And let's start looking at the human side of DevOps and what those original goals were around mean time to recovery and all of the learning that you're supposed to be doing around the DevOps workflows. And we might figure out that, you know what? You don't need a Kubernetes, you don't need a clustering system for containers. You might be able to get away with using Heroku, or you might be able to get away with using some of AWS's other alternatives, or nowadays we're, we're seeing in some of the parts of the community, something called like the Jamstack, which is the idea of hosting a CMS web backend in one place. And then really the front end that everyone looks at is a static website. Mm. And it you don't, you don't have to worry about production clustering, monitoring and all that stuff because your the front end of your website is just a static Nginx web server right. that can be run anywhere, right? And uh, we, we're starting to see all these other ways that, you know, of course we can talk about serverless, which is a whole separate podcast. Mm. <laughs> um, and all of these I ideas are ideas on how to automate infrastructure so that developers can get their code into production faster and more reliable and, you know, and, and replace it more often. Right. Uh, and that's all this is. So I, 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 we talk about a lot of this stuff here, but I also want to say, or maybe not. <laughs> it's up to you. Okay. Well, Brett, thank you so much for your time. I, I learned a number of things and I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I was glad to be here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.